as we go into this theme, this elephants in the room theme, I know it's the, um, the heart of the preaching team that we don't wanna simply say what is, is right and wrong on big issues around the Bible. Um, sometimes when we can come in and we say, this is right, this is wrong, all we can do is fuel the fire of who is correct and who is not. And so the way forward to renewal and revival is not simply saying this is right and this is not. That may pump some Christians up with confidence, but it can do one of two things. If you come to somebody and say, this is what the Bible says, if they are not a Jesus follower or a Bible-believing Christian, you have no foundation to say this is what I should believe. And so if we come and we address some of the elephants in the room, we address some of the big topics, we look at abortion, we look at anything that's major of the issues of our society right now, and we come with Bible correctness, the person who says, I don't believe the Bible will obviously not find that correct, and all we have is a, a war for who is right and who is wrong. And there's no real forward motion that can happen. And, and even if we say, this is what we believe as a church, there needs to be room for these conversations. There needs to be room for this, to talk about this, what we do believe. But I think sometimes in this moment here, we can actually do, uh, take more ground by addressing deeper things. And so if we do this and we say to Christians, this is what we believe, it's, it's never as simple as it sounds. I was talking to a young lady, um, and I talk with a lot of people who are sold out in their faith, yet they have differing, differing opinions on some of these major issues. I, I was talking to this young woman who said very confidently and outrightly, because we're Christians and the Bible says we should care about the poor and the marginalized, we should pay higher tax rates to make sure all their needs are met. That's the, how she interpreted the scriptures on what we should do for that. I, I read an article recently about um, some Presbyterians in Scotland who hold to the most literal orthodox interpretation, understanding of their faith. They don't even turn their phones on or TV on, electronics on, or talk to anybody else on the Sabbath. That's their interpretation of it. So they're super conservative. But in their interpretation of the scripture, they think the government's responsibility should be more socialistic, which is far left. So they themselves are very conservative, yet they're believing that the government's way forward should be something that is super left. And so, Another example, our, our political parties or people generally disagree on how to address the negative ramifications of sexual freedom, which we have and they're aware of that the, there are negative ramifications of sexual freedom in our society. Is it better in our secular culture to promote programs that should call for abstinence or is it best to hand out birth control? These are major issues that people talk about. Some believers are against all form of birth control, right? They say, hey, it stops procreation, it encourages sex outside of marriage, and that dictates the way that they should vote and the decisions that they make. Other Christians say, well, handing out birth control wouldn't really you know, stop people having sex outside marriage, and, but it would stop all the unwanted pregnancies which leads to abortion, and so they end up voting or believing something different in that way. And so it's never as simple as it sounds. There is always so many. We, what we have as Christians is we have a same moral sense, a similar moral vision, but we have so many different applications of how to outwork that in this society that we live in. And so how to navigate this? We need to be a church that navigates this well. We need to be a church that welcomes people and not shuts them out because they don't have the correctness over here, but allows them time to journey with us to meet the person of Jesus. No one's ever gonna come to a greater faith by you saying, 
your opinion on abortion is wrong, but when they can come and meet Jesus first, when they can meet Him in that place first. And so tonight I want to address something that I think is underlying a lot of the elephants that we face in our society and will actually help us navigate things. But, but this is not a message where it says, hey, this is how we change the world. This is a message that should change the church. The world is crazy. The world's always been crazy or continue to be crazy. But when crazy gets into the church, we have a problem. And so I want to talk to how we can be the church. If you, if you look at different cultures, it's easy to see that the Western world has progressed somewhat down an individualistic path. We look at Eastern religions and, and Asian religions, it's very more collective. We and us. In the Western world, it's me and my. And, and neither's right or wrong. Many commentators trace it back to like the Reformation where uh, before a certain time, the only people who had Bibles was the church. The Catholic Church had it, you come to church, they read you the Bible, you go home, you don't have the Bible, there's no app, there's no iPhone, there's, you can't even read it for yourself. And during the Reformation, in the whole printing press, the Bible got copied and pasted and people could read it for themselves. Now that is obviously a great thing, but there is big dangers to, being such, to having such an individualistic faith. And sometimes the collective, and the Bible was supposed to be read as a, a collective, but in this generation and in our time where we've gone down this way, people read the Bible for themselves. And the biggest danger is that we make our faith all about us. Our faith revolves around us. We take the statement, Jesus died for me. Me. He died for me. Instead of Jesus, the main subject of that statement is not me. The main subject is Jesus. And we read this into everything. We read the story of David and Goliath and the main story, the main take-home lesson we take out, well, David killed Goliath so I can kill my giants. A fine understanding of the story, but the main one is how Jesus can kill sin and death and every giant and the power is, is His. We read ourselves into it. And I, and I love all kinds of worship music that encourages us in who we are. But even when I was, I was writing today and I was listening to this worship playlist, it was all about who we are and who we can be. And in my spirit, I was just like, just, just give me something that makes me see God clearly. I, I, worship is about adoration of who He is. Just show me, I don't, I don't care about me. I change when I see Him. And so even our worship has been... Me, us, you see how in this individualistic faith, the danger is, not, and it's not always, it's, it's definitely not City Point worship music. You guys are great. But, but underneath so many things that we face, there is this neglect of a, a central belief. There's an overlooking of, I think, a, a key theological tenet. And I'm expressing it in my, my title tonight. It's called, Isn't It My Life? Isn't it my life? These days, aren't these days that I have Mine to do with what I will. In this story that I'm writing about Chris Ensby, shouldn't I be the writer of it? Aren't I in control of this story? And the simple answer is you have free will. Everybody has free will. It's a gift from God. Yes, you write your story, but there are so many forces beyond you that have such an impact on your story, which I wanna show you tonight. Isn't it my life? Isn't it for me? And, and if you're in this room tonight and, and maybe you believe in God or you don't believe in God or you, you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, you haven't got Him as your Lord, I am not asserting that you should behave according to the Bible. The number one thing to do is, is meet the person of Jesus. He's real. 
meet him. You can't obey the Bible without knowing the author of the Bible. Okay, and so you need to know the author of the Bible first. But for people in the room, if you say you believe in Jesus, you follow Jesus, that Jesus is your Lord, then this is gonna be a really uncomfortable verse that I'm about to read out. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 to 20 says this. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. At some point in your faith, there is a revelation that has to escalate things where you, where you stop seeing Christianity as something else you subscribe to as another Instagram page that you like the content of. And it changes into something much, much deeper. This is the unpopular statement. You, you are not your own. This is what the Word of God says. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. If, I, if I'm my own, I can write this story of my life however it suits me. 1 Corinthians 7 says about marriage that when you're married, the man is not only the man's, he also belongs to the wife and the wife belongs to the man. And so in my own story now, even on this earthly level, I am not my own. I have to consider my family. I consider everything that happens. My story is no longer my own. And it would be weird if I went off and started flirting with other women. Why? Because I belong to Ruth and she belongs to me. I am not my own. And so this is saying on a much deeper level, you are not your own. You belong to somebody. You are not just a bag of flesh or a bag of meat walking across this earth. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the place that the person of God, the third person of the Trinity, has chosen to make his residence in. And this is why it says, glorify God with your body in verse 20. Why glorify God with your body? Because your body is how you do anything on this planet. I walk around with my body. I talk to people and have a discussion with my body. I eat with my body. It's, this is how you do it. So glorify God with your body because when you go somewhere, anywhere with your body and you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, naturally, logically, the Holy Spirit goes with you. And so when you're gossiping with your friends over here, you've now subjected the Holy Spirit to gossip. Whatever you do, whatever you say, the Holy Spirit is there. Whatever you watch, you subject the Holy Spirit to. Whatever you do, you subject the Holy Spirit to. Because you are a temple of the Spirit. Wherever you go, He goes. Whatever you say, He's there. You are not your own. You belong to somebody. Glorify God with your body. See, glorifying God with your body is not putting a booty pic on Instagram with a Bible verse as a caption. <laughs> Ladies, your bum on Instagram is not glorifying God. <laughs> it's actually the loudest scream that you need someone else's affirmation to make you feel like you have value. And, and guys, you can't, you can't search for an ego boost and glorify God at the same time. Glorify God with your bodies. And the verse says you were bought at a price. And this can be offensive to people because the fact that you had to be purchased means something else owned you. Free things aren't bought, free things are taken. You were purchased. You were bought. There was a cost on your life that you couldn't pay yourself. See, something had you, something owned you, and Jesus bought. But the fact that he did pay that cost, that tells you something. That means you're, you're worth it. See, if... If Christianity is just a subscription to a moral set of values and a way of doing life and you attend a church service, it says nothing about your worth. 
But if you get this and you capture this, that you were bought at a price, a steep price, we'll get to what the price was, but it means you're worth something to somebody. And what the cost was determines what the worth is. Like I have stuff in my house that I really care about if it gets stolen or broken. I'm into triathlons at the moment and triathlon bikes and road bikes cost thousands of dollars. It is an expensive hobby. And so if you take my road bike or you steal that or you crash that, I'm probably gonna be really upset about that because it's, it's worth something to me. There's a whole bunch of things in my house that I, I don't care if you break them or, I mean, Aurora breaks them all the time. They're, they're not worth anything to me. So what it's worth to me is, and what it costs is directly proportional to what it's worth to me. And so what it costs, when it says you were purchased at a price, that price tag means a lot. If it was $5, you're worth $5 to God. <laughs> That's your value. Well, what is, what is your value? 1 Peter 1, 18 to 23 says this, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, which was inherited by your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, not with that little stuff, not, not, nothing as, as small as money, but you were purchased with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincerely brotherly love for one another from a pure heart, love one another constantly because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. This is confronting because it means every person's story, your story that you're writing, every human story is a story that's born into a type of slavery. Because of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, they strayed from God. It meant all humanity is born estranged from God. Like the verse says, this is verse 18, the first one, an empty way of life that was inherited by your ancestors. Sin is not just something that you do. Unfortunately, sin also has this generational, almost like a, a, a generation to generation, a DNA, that when you're born into it, you don't get a choice. There's this movie called Tangled. I don't know if anyone's seen Tangled. Yeah, people have seen Tangled. It's a it's a, like a cartoon version of the old story of Rapunzel. Rapunzel's like this Disney princess who has really long hair. And when she was a kid, she gets kidnapped by this old hag of a woman. And she, and she gets put in, I know this because Aurora started watching the other day and I was kind of a bit interested. Then I was like, this is a bit weird and new agey. You're not watching that. And then, but I got to the point where Rapunzel's growing up in this tower. It's like this tower where she's imprisoned. But for the first 18 years of her life, she, that's normal. She didn't know there was something outside of that. She's captive to this old witch and she lives there symbiotically because she doesn't know that she's actually a slave. And I find this so relevant to how many people start their stories and their journeys that they're in this place and they're in this tower. The Bible says they're slaves of sin. So they're in this tower and they don't know that they can be free from it. So they just try and fill it instead with the things that can temporarily satisfy them or make them a bit more comfortable in their tower. But this is the human condition where every human story starts because of a decision that the first humans made. And it's not weird to me that people in the world do crazy things. It is not weird that anxiety is on the rise, that divorce is on the rise, bad decisions and selfish decisions are made in the world. Because how can people make good decisions when they're 
captive to this tower of sin instead of having access to the good and kind and perfect will and order of God in their lives. And so 1 Peter 1 here shows a liberation from that way of life. This is what is promised, a liberation from Rapunzel's tower, a liberation from the tower of sin, a key moment in the story of of every human. Liberation from estrangement from God, the blood of Jesus. How much are you worth to God? The blood of His only Son. You are worth everything to God. You, it doesn't matter about your political opinion. It doesn't matter about your sexual orientation. It doesn't matter about your past. The Bible says, even when we were in our sin, Jesus died for us. You are worth more than His one and only Son. He loves you. The God of the universe loves you. He, he finds you of infinite value and infinite worth and He paid the ultimate price to liberate you from a way of life, that enslavement. God loves you. And maybe we don't talk about it as much as we used to, but maybe you need to hear it again tonight that you have value beyond what any person can bestow upon you, beyond what any Instagram account can affirm to you. You are loved by the God of the universe. And there is nothing that He wouldn't do to be in a relationship with you and he's proved that because he paid this price. You are not your own, you are bought at a price and the price shows your worth. You are worth a lot. So in one sense, Jesus' blood paid for your liberation, setting us free from Rapunzel's tower of sin. But in the other hand, it's also a change of ownership. And we like to sing about we are free, but we also need to know this other part that we were once slaves to sin, but now the Bible calls us slaves to righteousness. That there is an ownership change. It doesn't matter in this world. It's not a question of, do you worship? Or do you serve something? Or do you have your allegiance to something? The way we are created in the human DNA is that we do worship. You will worship something. You will serve something. You will have your allegiance to something. The thing we get to choose is what? You can be a sin to slave stuck in the tower, or you can be a slave of righteousness, living in the kingdom of God. You are not your own, you are bought at a price. And so glorify God with your body. Your day-to-day actions become holy. And we grasp that concept, and that's the theological concept, but this has some real practices around it. And I love this. Here we see the practice of this theological tenet that you're not your own, You're bought at a price. Here's the practice. Then he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life is gonna lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What does it benefit someone if they gain the whole world, if they lose or forfeit themselves or their soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and the holy angels. I don't think I really needed verse 26 to prove my point, but it's just so heavy I had to put it in there. This is the practice that comes with belonging to God. If anyone wants to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. For whoever, whoever wants to save their life loses it but whoever loses their life for Jesus will save it. What, what does it mean to deny yourself? This is, can be a tricky topic. Denying yourself, like when you're married and you have kids and a family, <clears throat> anyone that has kids and a family will know, you deny yourself a lot. 
You used to have your own time, you used to have your own schedule. Now every decision needs to get filtered through. What does my family need? What does my wife need? What do my kids need? There is a denial of the things that you want. But sometimes we can think that denial and denying ourselves in the Christian uh, faith is foregoing anything that ever brings you happiness. Right, all right, so anything that brings you joy, anything that brings you happiness, uh, anything that you really want, all your heart's desires, to deny myself would be like, I don't, I'm, I'm refusing all of that. And we put on this false martyrdom because the Bible says that the, in God, the Bible says in Psalms that God gives us the desires of our heart, that in His hands are riches and honour. So, so it can't be this fake martyrdom that I see some people doing where they say, hey, if I give up this, look, how, look at all the things I've denied for Jesus. In fact, the people in the Bible that often did that were Pharisees. Look at everything that I've given up. Look what I'm doing. Look at me fast. Look at all these things that I'm doing. And it's religious, this false martyrdom. So denying yourself isn't just the foregoing of everything that you want. Now, verse 24 is the key to understanding denying yourself. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. It's kind of like this, this paradox. I don't know if this is a good example, but I'm, I'm gonna run with it. If anyone, anyone seen Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone? Yeah, there's some Harry Potter fans in the place. Probably equal parts being like, that's of the devil, and that's really entertaining. <laughs> there's, this, there's this moment in, in um, the Harry Potter, if you haven't seen it, there's this stone which gives people eternal life which again is probably ripped from Christianity. But anyway, he has this stone and he's, he's, he's hidden it in a mirror. And the bad guy's there, Professor Somebody, and he's there trying to get the stone and Voldemort's there, he who shall not be named. They're trying to get this stone from this mirror. And the way that it's worked and the, and the trick that Dumbledore has put on it is that anybody who actually wants to get the stone out of the mirror to use for themselves will never get it. But then Harry Potter comes along, he's our hero, and he comes along and the only way that Harry Potter can get this stone is if he doesn't wanna use it for himself but wants to use it for the purpose of the creator. That's the only way he gets it. That's the only way he gets it. And, and this is, I think, more along the lines of what denying yourself means. See, denying yourself is being willing to forego anything that you want or do according to the purpose of the creator. I'm gonna put this on the screen. Denying yourself is this, is bringing every desire, good and bad, into submission to God and His Word. This is what denying yourself is. Denying yourself is bringing every desire, good and bad, into submission to God and His Word. Every desire, good and bad, because sometimes we think we only bring the bad things into, into submission to God. Like, oh, if I'm doing good things for God, then I shouldn't need to bring that into submission to Him because it's a good thing. But what I find is that good and bad is often culturally relevant, as in things that were bad 70 years ago are no longer bad. They're fine now. And so we cannot clarify good and bad by the things that society says approved because society always has these acceptable sins. And so we can't be just bringing what is good or what is bad, or what is bad towards God. It must be what is good and bad. The only foolproof way is to bring it all to the cross and let God crucify what He wants to crucify and let Him let live what He wants to let live. And so when it comes to sexuality, when it comes to abortion, when it comes to whatever the next big morally debated issue is, this is our framework in which the Christian needs to process it. Let me tell you a bit of a, how it worked with me. And, and, and hopefully this gives you a bit of context as to how we need to approach people and journey with them. Back in my college days, uh, my vice was drinking. We used to drink a lot. And for years and years and years, I would come to City Point 
and I would be getting drunk a lot. These two things were walking in parallel. And I knew what was right. Correctness of what the Bible said didn't change my pattern. And so it was years and years and years of walking alongside this sinful habit, this habit that was bad for my life, leading me down a bad path. And also I'm believing in Jesus, I'm following Him. There was years and years and years of it. There was no break off moment. But over time of walking with Jesus, you start to see Him more clearly. And He became more wonderful to me and He became trustworthy to me over years and years and years. And at one point there had to be, well, either I have to say that this thing is gonna satisfy me, this drinking's gonna be okay, it's, it's gonna be my escapism, my crutch, or I have to trust Jesus on it that He says is bad. And so my elimination of this sinful habit in my life did not come by me putting so many accountability structures around my life, although I had them. It came from me seeing God clearly and choosing Him over that. That's a bad desire coming and being submitted to God. And sometimes it happens in the moment, but for me, it took years. And whatever it is, it doesn't matter what the issue is. My mum was drinking. It can be any kind of issue that you're facing, lying, gossiping, issues of sexuality, whatever it is, the journey takes so long. We must be a church that can journey with people until people trust the person of Jesus enough to choose Him. Around the same time, I, had a, I was doing decathlons. I was doing track and field. I loved it. I wanted to be a Christian presence in a, uh, a sphere that is often so self-driven. It was good intentions. And I, and I remember one night, I do not remember the event, but I remember Pastor Aaron Lucas was there as up at what is now Society House. I remember this, this clear moment in worship when, when God said, give, give decathlon to me. And I was like, oh, I wanna keep doing it. And he's like, oh, I'm not gonna stop you doing, but give it to me. And so I remember this moment, this was something good in my life where I surrendered and submitted to God. And it was like this, it's a, it's, a, it's a fearful moment because when it takes it out of your hand and put it in God's hand, any moment God can crush it and stop it and change it. And, and I did decathlon for a couple of years after that. And then I remember one moment God being like, it's, you're done with that, it's time to move on. And there was no, usually when you leave a sport like that, there's exercise dependency, there's all these kinds of things. And I had none of it. There was no missing of it. There was no mourning of this huge thing of my life, which was six hours a day, because God already had it in His hand. It was the good and the bad desires in my life submitted to God. We need to do both. We need to be a church that, and this is how I think we move forward into the future with so many tricky topics. This is how we navigate into the future. We need to be a church that can journey with people because whatever you are, you have something that needs to be laid down before Jesus. You might've been holding it for 16 years and it's still walking, but, but I found this that belief and unbelief can only walk alongside each other for so long. At some point, at some point you go either way and, and we need to be the church that says, look at him, look at our Jesus. Like the Samaritan woman did, look at this guy that I met. She did something in me, maybe, maybe he could do it for you. Could he be the Messiah? And that's how we journey with people. That's how people can feel welcome here, but we don't have to um, cover up or, or hide away the truth of the Word of God because when we show people the Word of God, Jesus Christ, they, they start to see this. And if we can get people to get this concept, that when you believe in Jesus, you're not your own, you were bought at a price. 
You don't have the right to hold on to this anymore. You lay it down before Jesus. And, and I think this is awesome because a church like that, nobody can stay as they are. <laughs> it's not just these liberal progressives that need to change. It's the conservative religious that need to as well. Because we're all on a journey, we're all doing it. We all bring our desires before God and He constantly changes us and shapes us and makes us new and different. But if we don't, I find this verse in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 23 is what happens. It says this, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of people. And, and this is the thing, if you do not realise whose you are, who paid the price for you, who you belong to. This is, this is not just a, oh, he, he's my God and he's over there. We kind of got this loose relationship. No, you belong to him. You belong to him. Do not become slaves of people. When I look around the world at the moment and also sometimes in the church at the moment, I see a lot of people who are slaves to people. They can't see their change. They're slaves to social pressure. They're slaves to anxiety, slaves to expectations of others. Slaves to cycles of dysfunction, slaves to being needed, slaves to being desired, slaves to jealousy and envy. And we may have abolished physical slavery, but spiritual emotional slavery is running rampant in Australia. And the co- it has a hold on people, it owns people. If you do not know whose you are, you become a slave to people. The cost of sin is always blood. If you look through the Old Testament, we see over and over again, year after year, it was always a sacrifice of an animal that was to atone for sins. And, and here we need to show people that Jesus liberated us because people can't see their own chains. Like Rapunzel in their tower, they don't know that they're captives. And this is such a hard thing to do. Galatians 5, 24 to 25 says this. Those who belong to Christ, again, this concept You belong to him. You are not your own. It's not like you get liberated from this tower and then you're a kind of this free-floating spirit that is free to just do whatever you want. Sometimes that's what we think freedom is, right? I've been taken from here and I've been released to do whatever I want. That's, That's not what the gospel says at all. You belong to sin, now you belong to God. Belonging to God is just much better than belonging to sin. Those who have belonged to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. It's a constant crucifying just as it's a constant stepping. And so tonight I wanna leave you with a challenge, something that's really impacted me and changed the way we do things. And it's written over 70 times in the Bible. And I I wanna finish on on this bit. I wanna encourage you to do it and it's not some super feel good, happy moment. I'm talking about fasting. I'm talking about a return to fasting as a practice in our lives. I think it's needed because fasting is the foregoing of something the flesh wants and the needs. And we live in a generation that seeks to satisfy the flesh. Jesus, in the Galatians 5, it says, those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. But the society that we live in feeds the flesh far more than it feeds the spirit. And with all that we have on our devices, most people are actively being out-discipled by the world than they are by the things of God and the church and Jesus. Fasting brings a clarity and a balance to this. Returning to fasting, it's biblical and therefore it's God's design. We see examples in Moses. 
King David, the New Testament church in Jesus Himself. If the Son of God needed to fast, chances are good you do too. Fasting feeds your spirit and starves your flesh. I find, and fasting can be done in like a meal of a day or it can be done days on end. I definitely do not recommend doing 40 days in the desert like Jesus did. It says He was led by the Spirit into the desert. If you're not led to do 40 days, you will probably die. But start with a few days. I've, I've noticed this pattern when I, I fast. I get to day, probably day one or two, I'm like, you can push through in your flesh. You can, you can get through. Day three or four, I start to realise I'm so much more than this. I'm so much more than this, this flesh, this, this bag of meat. <laughs> I'm so much more than this. And you start to see things clearly and hear things differently. It restores your strength. It restores and strengthens your intimacy with God. Some people think they can't feel God anymore, don't feel His love anymore because your flesh is so fed. Your flesh is overweight. Your flesh needs to go on Jenny Craig through face fasting. It humbles yourself in the sight of God. We live in a proud people and God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. It brings breakthrough, healing and clarity. It lets you hear God easier. If you don't know the voice of God, if you're seeking something from Him, try fasting. It reveals your true spiritual condition. It revives your own life, leading to sparks of revival in your world. It's a practice of aligning yourself with the transformative power of God. Even Jesus says to His disciples, they couldn't cast a demon out. And He says, this one can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. Not that you meet one and then you should go pray and fast, but it should be part of your life. That fasting, and you'll either hear this and you'll be like, I need to do this as part of my practice. Or you'll be like, I don't need to do this. And do you know what that means? It means you really need to do this. <laughs> If you think you do not need to grow closer with God through fasting, you really need to fast. Your flesh is fat. Those who seek to keep their life will lose it. This is, this is why fasting is important. Those who seek to keep their life, to amass to their life, to consume more, to have more to their life will lose it. But those who lose their life for my sake will find it. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You have somebody who you belong to. He loves you. You have infinite worth in Him. And to navigate this next season as a church and as a person, we need to have this practice that yes, this is my story and I'm writing it, but it's not isolated, it's connected. I belong to someone. I've been liberated from something. And with Him, We've been saved into a kingdom and a future that is nothing like a tower of sin, but one of life and of purpose and of value. Let me pray as we close tonight. God, I thank You that You freed us. You liberated us. We didn't even know we needed it, but You sent Your Son and You loved Your Son. It's not like this was a person that You had nothing for. You, you loved Him your only Son who you loved, yet you sent Him because our liberation costs so much. That the price of sin on our life had to be paid in blood, but we couldn't do it. The cost was too high. And so you sent your Son and He paid the price. He died on the cross for me, for us, for this church, for humanity. 
that we could be liberated, that we could be free from sin, that we're no longer slaves of sin, but now we belong to You. God, I pray we are a people that journey with others. I pray we are a church that journeys with others, that helps them lay down their desires, that helps them meet You. God, may not not be a church that's focused on the correctness of things, but rather just focused on You. Can we see You more clearly tonight than we have before? Can we be a church that introduces people to You? Can we be a people that shares our story, that shares You? And as people see You, Lord, everything else falls into place. God, will You reveal things to people tonight bad desires and good desires that they need to bring before You right now in this moment. Holy Spirit, Spirit of conviction right now. Good desires, bad desires, unsubmitted areas of their life, will they bring it to You right now? Start to lay it down before You that we can be a church submitted to You and therefore a powerful church. Can we please know our value tonight? For anyone here that doesn't think they're worth anything, that thinks they're a mistake, that thinks they're a second choice, by your spirit, will you show them that they are the apple of your eye, God, that you love them, that they're worth so much, that they're valuable to you. And while all heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if there's people in this place tonight who haven't met Jesus like that, you might've been here every week, for five years, but you don't know Jesus. You've been subscribed to a a moral value system, but you don't know the person of Jesus. This is your moment. It's one decision. Or maybe you have known Him before, but you've gone your own way. You've done things in your life that you think disqualified you from the love of God, but it's just one decision to come back and have that relationship with you, be liberated, Don't be a slave to sin, but belong to God. If you need to make that decision tonight, I just want you to raise your hand in this place so we can pray together. Thank you, I see that hand. Anybody else tonight? Thank you, Jesus. God, I thank you for that hand that I saw and any hands that I didn't and the hearts that opened up to you in this moment. God, I thank You that You washed them white as snow, that You cast all their sins away from them as far as the East is from the West, and You set them apart for a purpose in life, walking with a God who loves them in peace and joy for all their days of their life. We thank You for salvation in Jesus' Name. Amen. Amen. Put our hands together for that decision. Great decision. Great decision.